Hello, everybody, and welcome to episode one of Politics Band. Uh, my name is Todd. I'll be your host today. Welcome to the podcast. If you are listening to this being the very first episode, uh, thank you for your time. Uh, that's one thing that uh, you're going to find with these podcast episodes is uh, I try to be as respectful of everybody's time as possible, make this an educational experience, and uh, because I recognize that time is probably one of the most valuable assets that any of us can give in any given moment. If you happen to uh, have found other episodes of this podcast and decided to start with episode one and work your way through sequentially, welcome. Thank you very much for also spending your time here on the podcast. Being that this is the first episode, uh, we're going to be a little bit kind of all over the place, but I want to talk to you today about the subject headline of this podcast, which is there is no money. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about the theme of the podcast, what you can possibly expect from the podcast episodes to give everybody kind of a brief overview of uh, the expectations and uh, what this podcast is all about, what it's not all about, and what potentially sets it apart from other political podcasts. So first, politics band. What What is in a name, right? I have to admit that um, I've gone back and forth with names for this podcast. I wanted to be as descript as possible so you understood exactly what kind of listening experience you could expect to have. This isn't going to be controversial in the sense of outlandish theories or unproven facts uh, or crazy, you know, sort of hand-waving, frantic, you know, rant, I, don't, I don't know, just like streams of consciousness that are essentially irrational. That's not what you can expect to find here. However, in today's social media landscape, we're seeing the truth effectively being censored and the irrational truth of postmodernism taking its place, the relative truth, the subjective truth. But the even the relative and subjective truth uh, cannot escape the one simple rule, which is any color as long as it's black. Meaning that as long as you have the correct relative truth, the correct subjective truth, and your opinion is allowed to exist on the internet in a variety of different corners. If you have the wrong truth, or what I would argue to be the truth, then you are subjectively banned, erased from existence in a digital sense. And so these political discussions are going to most likely be the kinds of topics and information that will most likely get the podcast banned at some point or another. We'll see how long that takes, if it ever does at all. Either way, in the meantime, I'm happy to provide some education, insight, or at the very least, a different perspective than what you might be hearing, reading, or seeing out there. Let's start in the various broadest context. The cool thing about this podcast is it's not necessarily going to be all politically related. However, because politics enters into just about every single realm of our lives these days, I guess you could say that the topics and the areas that we can discuss are almost limitless. However, that being said, I want to focus on a few specific areas, namely, obviously, current events and news. I want to focus on some aspects of political strategy and perhaps some more nuanced discussions of politics, including history and philosophy. And I also want to discuss a critique of the media. And I think critiquing the media is a critical part of political discussion because it's how we consume our information. It's how we understand the world that is sort of beyond 
the pers- our, our own biological perspectives, what we see and what we hear. And so we depend on other people to tell the story and to tell that story in a truthful manner. And so critiquing the media is also very important because the media sets the context or lack of thereof for a lot of these political discussions. But it's also because of the internet and the power that it brings that alternative media have sprung up in its place and you're able to listen to podcasts just like this one and perhaps get a perspective that you have not been exposed to. But overall, the goal that I have with this podcast is to scratch an itch that I have had for a very long time. Um, If you happen to know me personally, you will understand and no doubt have been subjected to a lot of social media posts about various political topics. And what you can expect from me is, again, not an irrational approach to politics. I'm not here to name call necessarily. I'm not even really here to insult or degrade. I'm here to inform. I'm here to explain. Um, I'm here in maybe a, a, a smaller context. I'm here to persuade. But even if you're not here to be persuaded, my goal is just simply to offer another viewpoint in a very rational discussion oriented format. And you can walk away with whatever you'd like, as much or as little as you like. But ultimately, listening is probably the most important thing that you can do. And so as a result of that, I want to be able to provide concise, interesting, and truthful information in a way that is void of emotion so that we can sort of move past this subjective and anecdotal aspects of politics where everything is based only on our own experiences and how we reject anything that doesn't fit into our own world. So that's a very broad understanding of what you can find and what you can expect here at Politics Band. And we're going to start today with a topic that is going to be a little bit easier to discuss, perhaps not so controversial, but I'm hoping it's one that you find both informative, but also enlightening. Because I feel like this particular topic basically frames how I view all of the current politics through this particular prism, which is the prism of debt. Now, I recognize that financial topics are not the most page-turning topics that anybody can discuss. There's a lot more hot-button emotional issues that we can talk about that might, you know, grasp your undivided attention. But I promise you that when you start talking about post-apocalyptic topics, when you start talking about true devastation, true human suffering, I promise that debt government debt, personal debt maybe, is a massive, giant, scary dragon. One that might be so powerful that we cannot slay at this particular moment in time. And so I feel like it is important to talk about this topic because this should be the topic that you use as your as your prism, as your looking glass. And everything that you see in Washington today, or even your own local or state politics, needs to be viewed through the context that I'm going to explore with you today because it's critical to understand what I would consider to be one fundamental truth of politics. And that is that everything that you see today, all the controversy with Donald Trump, all the controversy that you see with race politics, um, Democrat versus Republican, young versus old, uh, black versus white, 
you know, gay versus straight, uh, you know, men versus women, all of this stuff. It's, it's all a dog and pony show. And we can sit and we can talk about the daily events and we can talk about the nuance and the minutia and we can argue back and forth on different philosophical or principled standpoints. But at the end of the day, the debt is the sword of Damocles. That's, it's the guillotine over our head that is threatening to cut us off at the neck or slice our jugular or however you would like to visualize it at virtually any moment. So with that, I wanted to lead with one final point about politics ban and kind of why I'm here. And it's something I've struggled with a lot. I have, uh, I've been in the social media space, um, I'd say probably for about the better part of four years. I mean, of course, I've had a Facebook account a lot longer than that, which was probably the very first entrance into social media. And But I've done YouTube in particular for by about four years, and it sort of satisfied my creative side to get into video and filmmaking in some respects and vlogging and you know working in a community with other people and collaborating. But politics and current events and and the aspects that go along with that, whether it's history and philosophy, all that sort of thing. This is something I've always had a real interest in, but I've had a a real difficulty integrating this into any kind of YouTube format. Uh, There's a lot of distractions that come with YouTube, whether it be visuals and it be camera work and it be cutting. And it just doesn't, it it became more the, the process of creating these videos and putting together these productions really got in the way of the discussion. And so after a lot of thinking and consideration, I've decided to opt into a podcast style format because I feel like this is the best way to provide information in a way that doesn't necessarily require your undivided attention. The great thing about listening, whether you're listening to audiobooks or you're listening to music or anything like that, is you can always engage in a bunch of different activities while you're absorbing all this information. And so it allows you to be more productive, and I'm all about productivity, trust me. So I feel like the podcast is the most raw, uninterrupted stream of consciousness method that I can use to deliver this information to you. And I've given a lot of thought to this podcast, and even though you you may not necessarily know me personally and you may have never met me, um, I've been trying to understand how best to utilize the talents that have been given to me that have been that I've been blessed with. And I've you can no doubt have guessed by now I am an articulate uh, sort of gift of gab individual and um, I've had both informal and formal speaking training and this has been a talent of mine that I've had I've been able to communicate both to large crowds and small crowds and um, I have a, 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 a real keen interest in leadership and personal development. And this is a gift that I was given, and I feel like that I'm squandering this gift by not exercising in some fashion. And while YouTube provided some of that outlet, it really wasn't allowing I, – I wasn't allowed to focus really exclusively on politics because it, it's a tough world out there right now. Um, if you don't have the right political opinion, you're attacked, you're denigrated, you're destroyed – so I hope you can appreciate that this is actually a little bit of a risky situation for me, but podcasting allows a little bit more distance between me and other people, but most importantly, it gives me a lot more of a direct connection with you, the listener. That, and I've spent a lot of years 
listening to talk radio. I love talk radio, local, national, syndicated shows, all that sort of thing. It's a really great way to kind of have a lot of complex information summarized in a way that um, if I want to investigate something later on my own, I can, but somebody else is spending the time looking into interesting or critical facts that I may not be able to devote my own time to. Because after all, we all work. You know, Some of us have kids. Some of us are married. And as a result of that, we don't have time to sit in front of this stuff all day. So I, I, I hope that um, that provides a little bit of context. If you're new to the podcast or if maybe you've listened to a few episodes, but you're really curious about what the backstory was and why it was created, I don't have any idea how long this is going to go on. And I have to admit that right now I don't even have an idea of what my release schedule is going to be. Uh, at this point, I'm just really focusing on putting out content that's interesting and uh, thought-provoking. So we're just going to kind of roll with it and see how it goes. Uh, I'll do my best to provide you the means of uh, providing feedback, both positive and negative. Uh, you know, Everybody should feel free to voice their own opinions here, even if I don't necessarily agree or really like it. At the final note with all of this particular aspect is... Um, you know, what, what makes me so special? Like, what, why do I feel the need to do this? I had somebody a long time ago kind of drop a interesting, and I would say somewhat accurate perspective, which is all aspects of social media, and especially when you're talking about social media trying to be some type of an influencer, it all involves some form of narcissism. That there's some part of me that has to believe that I have an opinion or a talent or a perspective that, you know, somebody else should, should care about. And who am I to, uh, to, to hoist that upon the world, believing that I have a, an opinion or something to that effect that anybody should listen to. And I guess the best way to describe my feeling about this is a quote by Morris Udall. And this has been quoted several times in politics by a lot of different politicians. And he said, everything has been said, but not by everybody. Or perhaps another variation is everything has been said, but not everyone has said it. And so that's more or less, I guess you could say, the, 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 the void, the vacuum that I'm going to be attempting to fill. The ideas that I'm going to present to you over the course of these podcasts are not even necessarily all my own ideas. They're not necessarily original content that's coming from me. It could very well just be a summation of different ideas or a condensing of different ideas but because I have the ability to, to relay this information in, an, in a thought-provoking, intelligent, and rational way, I feel like I need to lend my voice because things are, things are perilous in this country right now. Things are perilous if you live in the United States. Um, we're, living in a very, we're living in very interesting times. I don't know if you've ever heard the old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. But we do. We really live in interesting times. I do believe this is the greatest time to be alive if you're, if you're a human. Um, we are on the cusp of some truly incredible technological breakthroughs. Never before has, uh, has the first world country had so many lavish uh, perks and capabilities. And the things that we are able to do as people, the things that we take for granted, are truly unbelievable. Almost almost magic like if you you know if if you were to just turn the clock back 50 years things right out of science fiction but not even just the technological aspects but just the service and the service oriented the the prosperity the 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 amount of things that we can have and and the prices at which we can have them all that sort of thing it's it's truly revolutionary and and truly amazing 
I do believe that this is uh, that we are all very fortunate to be alive at this time. And I think that we're all here for a particular reason. And while I'm not going to sit here and pretend like I have some kind of, you know, grandiose uh, perspective of myself or, or some kind of a grand mission, I, I've gotten sick and tired of sort of sitting around and complaining about things that are happening. And there's not really, a, you know, I, when I take stock of my talents and the things that I can do, I'm not, I'm not rich, you know, and so I can't devote serious amounts of money to political campaigns or causes. I have no interest in running for office because as far as I'm concerned, the system is unfixable from the inside. And as a result, I don't want to get swallowed by the system and ultimately spend a, a huge portion of my life fighting a battle that ultimately doesn't go anywhere. Um, you know, and I value some, I value a little bit of my privacy and I value a little bit of the anonymity that comes with being able to speak in this manner. And so all that rolled up, I'm left with a very limited options compared to the, you know, in comparison to the talents that I bring to the table. So this is my way of sort of contributing. This is sort of my way of doing something as opposed to sitting around and saying, gosh, I hope somebody else does something. I hope somebody else makes this point. And um, I guess the final point is, is that the very, very limited social circle that I have on uh, social media will most likely no longer have to be subjected to my, to my rants. Uh, even though I feel like my rants are very well put together and they're articulated with facts and rational argumentation, I'm sure I've got friends of mine that have got me blocked or at the very least have unfollowed me in various instances because they're sick and tired of having to read my posts every day. They would you know, rather talk about you know, stupid shit like their cats or their kids or something like that. And, I mean, if you, and if you, please, if you post about your kids every single day, please stop. Just please. Uh, there are those of us out here that are that would like to see more interesting things, and we don't always want to see our kids. But that being said, uh, if you're offended by that, that's great. Uh, you know, get ready to uh, get ready to to surrender more of your own authority, of your own emotions to me, as you're continuously offended by your own choice. Because this is politics band, and eventually we're going to start talking about stuff that I'm sure is going to get people really upset. But at the end of the day, let's be rational. You know, let's be thoughtful about it in the sense of. You know, even if you don't agree, um, give it give it some thought. You know, put up a good argument. I'm I'm willing to have the discussion. I'm just not willing to have the back and forth shouting and, you know, being accused of being a white supremacist and a Nazi and the name calling the kind of stuff that you did on the elementary school playground. So now that we're almost about 20 minutes into this podcast, let's actually get down to what we're talking about. I want to talk about debt. I want to talk about government debt. I want to talk about uh, some of the insolvency in government programs. And we're going to start in a very broad contest, and we're going to kind of work our way in. And then we're going to circle back and, and sort of do a summary. So that's what you can expect. All right, with that, um, I think the best way to, ex- to start this discussion is to actually start with a Thomas Jefferson quote that he wrote in 1821. And Thomas Jefferson said, There does not exist an engine so corruptive of the government and so demoralizing of the nation as public debt. It will bring us more ruin at home than all the enemies from abroad against whom... This army and navy are here to protect us. And Jefferson was just one of many who warned extensively about government debt and the ruin by which government debt can wreak on this country. And at the time of this podcast, which is uh, September 11th, 2018, of which I do want to take a very brief moment and acknowledge the men and women who lost their lives on September 11th, 2001. Uh, however, that is a discussion for another time. 
Uh, we're nearing somewhere around or above $20 trillion of fiscal operating debt from the federal government. And I believe that there's another 3 to $4 trillion of state and local debt. And it's a unsustainable number, even with just that. However, you may be surprised to know that the fiscal operating debt figure of 19 to 20 trillion is actually not the accurate figure. The accurate figure, if the federal government was to report their fiscal obligations and liabilities, just like every other private corporation is required to do as part of their yearly financial filings, we would be somewhere between 90 trillion and $230 trillion in debt. That is not a mistake. That is trillion, T is in Tom, not billion, not B is in boy, trillion. Between 90 and $220 trillion in debt. Now, how do we arrive at that number? We arrive at that number by actually not only adding up all the fiscal operating debt that this country has, but also looking at the unfunded liabilities. Now, what's a liability? A liability is money that you owe to somebody, but you haven't paid it yet. A really um, easy example, and again, I'm not a financial expert, so I'm willing to be willing and open to being corrected. But one potential um, liability that could be examined is your vacation time. If you happen to work at a company that awards you vacation time, if that vacation time hasn't been actually, if you haven't taken that vacation time and it's paid vacation, your company is obligated, uh, as far as I know, in many places by law, that that's considered earned income. The company has to pay you for that vacation. It's considered earned at the time that it's accrued. So on the basically on the fiscal books, the companies consider that to be a liability. It's money that's owed to you that they have yet to pay out. Well, we have liabilities in the form of social welfare programs or entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, as a couple of examples. And those two occupy an enormous amount of the federal budget. And as a result, there's a lot of money that hasn't been paid out yet. We have uh, people who have yet to reach the eligibility ages for these programs, myself included, You know, we have people that are on these programs that have a particular life expectancy, at which point we have to project that we're going to pay out for these individuals, but we have yet to do it. So these are liabilities that have to be taken into account. And these liabilities are unfunded because we don't currently have the money. So given that we are so far in, that is considered to be part of the national debt, the actual national debt. We have to consider liabilities in our actual debt. The fiscal operating debt is essentially debt that has to be serviced through the selling of uh, treasury bonds. And so if you're not familiar with the basics of how the debt system works, is that the government is able to acquire additional capital beyond the tax revenue that is taken in every single year through income taxes and a variety of other tax sources. And they issue treasury bonds at a certain uh, at a certain length of time, two year you know a year, two years, five years, ten years, thirty years, what have you. And the idea is is that you buy these treasury bonds with a certain amount of money, and these treasury bonds lock in a particular interest rate. 
could be, you know, a couple percent, three, four, five percent, whatever. And the idea is when this bond matures at the end of the year, two, three, five, 10, 15, 30 years, you are paid back your principal plus the additional interest that you earned at the bond. And the reason why people invest in this is because of the full faith and credit of the United States government. And the idea is, is that it's a very safe place to put your money as opposed to the stock market, you know, commodities, uh, things of that nature, which are volatile and can change and alter in price over the course of many years. So that's how, and then the government takes that principle and they're able to spend it now. And it's the same exact principle that you get with a credit card. And I suppose I should have prefaced this up front with, you're going to hear people tell you, you can't possibly understand the federal budget. It's too much money. You know, you don't know anything about spending trillions of dollars to fund a government as large as the United States government. And I should point out that the United States government is the single largest monopoly in the country. We all talk about, especially even recently in the recent news, you know, we talk about Google and Facebook and Twitter being uh, monopolies of the social media space and of the, the digital commons and whatnot. The United States government remains and will most likely continue to be the largest monopoly in the country. Uh, it, it carries enormous power, enormous, enormous spending power. So if, if, you know, we always want to put those things in context. So it's important to understand the enormous amount of risk that is placed on us when you talk about debt and that, but that, that debt is not complex. It's only complex if you are a member of Congress or the president of the United States or any one of the, you know, fourth branch of government, these bureaucrats, these administrative bureaucrats that we have working for us that, that, you know, stay over from administrative to administration to administration that are not elected, but essentially make policy and regulations that impact every single American. And there's no, there's no vote. You know, there's no hearing in many cases. Uh, it all happens under the, under the, you know, the, in the, you know, the dark corners of Washington that uh, away from the prying eyes of the public. So you're going to be told that you don't understand the budget. It's too complicated. It's too much money. I'm here to tell you that the federal budget is very easy to understand. It's money in, money out. It's no more or less complex than your own bank account. And the reason why it becomes so compl- complex, if anything, is in an effort to hide or mislead uh, so that you don't have uh, a, so you don't necessarily have an understanding of what's going on. But it is very simple. The You have money in and you have money out. And when you have more money going out than money coming in, you run deficits every single year. And then, of course, those deficits at the end of the year are tacked on to the overall national debt. So when you hear the differences between deficits and debt, deficits are an annual measurement, whereas the debt is a, is a cumulative overall measurement. So when we run deficits, we ha- that money has to come from somewhere. And that money comes from the form of treasury bonds, but it also comes in the form of printed cash. And the system gets a little bit more complex when you start examining the role of the Federal Reserve and how the Federal Reserve has actually purchased uh, you know, trillions of dollars worth of the national debt and done so with money that's essentially been invented out of whole cloth. 
And that's where the system gets complex. But in terms of understanding the budget, in terms of understanding how the country spends money, it is no more or less difficult to understand than your own budget. And essentially what we have is a situation where there we have a credit card that has a virtually unlimited amount of money that can be spent on it. It has, you know, your credit limit is what is known as the debt ceiling. And every couple of years we have this showdown over the debt ceiling and we're always talked we're always told as the American public how we're going to default, which is a complete lie. You cannot default on your debt if you do not raise your credit limit. As long as you continue to pay your minimum monthly balances, you are servicing your debt and therefore you will not default. You only default on your debt if you stop paying on it or if you reveal to the bank that you were unable to pay back the principal of the loan. So as long as we continue to service our debt, you know, we're going to be fine. And you might be interested to know that in the, I think it's fiscal year 2016, I think that's the most uh, recent data, we paid $300 billion servicing the national debt. $300 billion. Now, a small tidbit that I'll throw in there is it's also important to note that the federal government, uh, through waste, fraud, and abuse, spends uh, $120 billion of your tax money every single year through waste, fraud, and abuse. Just a little to kind of put that in perspective. So the first place that I want to stop is kind of talking about the overall picture and kind of where we're at. And there's a Forbes.com article where they talk about how the total GDP, the gross domestic product of the United States, at the time of this article, this was written in uh, October 10th of 2017, so it's a little, it's about a year old. But at the time, the total GDP is roughly 19.3 trillion, and so the so this is what the this is what Forbes says. So the federal debt is about equal at to one full year of the entire nation's collective economic output. That total does not count the three trillion plus of state and local debt, in which almost every other country of the world is included in their national debt numbers. Including state and local debt in U.S. figures would take our debt to our debt to GDP ratio above 115 percent. Now, it's important to know that on a international scale, when you start to exceed 100 percent debt to GDP ratio, people start to get very, very worried because when your entire debt is equal to one year of domestic gross domestic product output of your country it starts to become really unlikely that you're going to be able to pay back the full principle of the debt that you owe and so what happens is is that if you're an investor and you're trying to find a place to park your money in order for it to work for you you're not very likely to go with somebody who might not be able to repay their bills because I mean, maybe that maybe they can repay some people, but the question is who's going to get left holding the bag. And so it becomes very risky. So in order to entice people, this is very important. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit here, but in order to entice people to continuously buy bonds, the interest rates have to go up, not only to account for the increase in risk, but because you have to factor in inflation. And this is kind of a different discussion, but it's important to note here. The reason why 
interest rates with respect to annual inflation, in other words, the value of the dollar decreasing every single year because there's more dollars in circulation, the reason why that's so important is, let's say if the if the annual uh, inflationary rate of the dollar is uh, let's say let's say I mean these numbers are a little outrageous, but let's just say that it's five percent. So every single year, the U.S. dollar loses five percent of its actual inherent spending power. Well, if I have a a treasury bond that only has an interest rate of three point five percent, that means by the time that bond matures, at the end of say, you know, five years. I mean, even a year, but say five years, I will have actually lost money as opposed to gaining money because the inflationary rate of the U.S. dollar will have made the dollars I put into that bond worth less every single year. And so this is sort of a race against time. And I think that's also why we're seeing this effort to pretend like there's no inflation taking place within the country as well. Because if people knew that there, that the inflationary rate of the dollar was well above, I think, like the 1.5% or 2% that's reported currently by the Fed – People would be abandoning some of these treasury bonds because why would you why would you put your money into something that you would just lose money? It locks the money up like it's a stupid thing to do. You might as well just burn it. So people would be spending their money elsewhere. They wouldn't be buying government debt. The government would have to either print more money or admit, hey, we 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 can't we don't have any more money. But the truth of the matter is, is that we're out of money. Like we're 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 flat flat broke. Like we've been broke for decades we've been broke for decades because we're the money that we're taking in through tax dollars technically has already been spent we spent it years ago we spent it decades ago we don't have any money we're operating on fake monopoly cash like we 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 are we are operating on credit at this point it's not real money it's not a real asset it's completely fake all of the prosperity, like this is kind of a, you know, I think when I think about this, I think about this from the perspective of like, if you guys have seen the first Terminator, you know, and the, the, I can't remember the actor's name, but he plays Kyle Reese and he's, uh, he's telling Sarah Connor, you know, you know, how he looks and he just sees destruction. All of these buildings are all gone. You know, he, he sees the world through the lens of nuclear apocalypse, you know that he he all the the buildings are gone, and that's that's how I see the economy of the United States. And I know that right now the economy are we're putting out these incredible numbers, and there's all you know there's record low unemployment. But you have to understand the prosperity, at least from the perspective of the federal government. All of the expenditures and prosperity, it's all fake. It's all built on credit. It's all built on lies. It's been spent years ago. We are operating on plastic. We're operating on 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 paper money that has no value. It's 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 already gone. And so when you start seeing our budgetary expenditures and the things that happen in Washington, it's all fake. If you're a military contractor and you are paid for by the United States government and you if you are paid with tax dollars, your prosperity is pretend. It is fake. It's totally fake. It's based on money that was printed that has no value. It's that's about the only way that I can describe it. It's insanity. One of the things that I want to talk about that's highlighted in this Forbes article 
is discussing social security because social security is kind of an example of the problem that we're dealing with here. And social security is an enormous expenditure that happens every single year. And in Forbes, they talk about how social security is not an insurance or any kind of property. It's a contribution because what I hear so often when I've, when I've had, when I've made this argument with individuals who are collecting social security and I tell them, you understand that this isn't like an investment vehicle. What you, what is happening here is that you gave a dollar to social security during the time period that you were working and you are getting $3 back. Okay. That's, that's unsustainable. If I give you a $20 bill and you give me a $50 bill, and we just continuously keep doing that. I mean, that cannot continue. It's, it's, it's unsustainable. It is impossible for you to prosper if I am giving you a $20 bill and you're giving me a $50 bill. Now, if you got somebody behind you that's feeding you $100 bills and I'm giving you $20 bills and then I'm getting a 50s in exchange, that's great. But what about the dude who's giving the $100 bills to you on the back end? Well, what's his story? Well, that's the person who's contributing to Social Security today. And what's even crazy is the guy who's forking in those $100 bills, he's never going to see a dime of that money. I'm 36 years old. I, 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 everybody that I've talked to, I'm, I'm like right on the very edge of the millennial generation. I was born in 1982. And everybody I talk to who's around my age, a little bit older, a little bit younger, not a single person has ever told me, oh, yeah, I expect to get Social Security when I get older. Like, we all know it's not going to be there. We all know that the power and the financial influence of the elderly generation right now, the baby boomers, is well beyond anything that we can bring to bear. Now, even though we are, at this particular point, one of the largest voting blocks, um, the elderly have all the financial resources. They're the single wealthiest generation that's currently alive, which makes sense. They've been alive the longest. They have had the longest amount of time to accumulate property. But that gives them enormous political power, and they vote. They vote a lot. I mean, because they don't have shit to do, because they're, li- they're busy li- living off of their own retirements or living off the state or both. So they vote, and they have a lot of financial resources available. The stories of grandma having to choose between getting her pills or getting her, you know, or eating dog food, um, were vastly overblown. The elderly generation as a whole is the wealthiest generation that's alive. And I mean, rationally speaking, logically speaking, that makes total sense. So social security is a huge pyramid scheme. It is a, is nothing more than a wealth redistribution mechanism and it is going to fail. So this is how Forbes describes the, this, well, let me finish up this article by, by pointing out that, so the argument that's presented by people who are getting Social Security is, well, I paid into the system, I'm entitled to that money, hence why they call them entitlements. And it says a 1960 Supreme Court case, which was Fleming versus Nestor, ruled that Social Security is not insurance of any other kind of, or any other kind of property, the law obligates you to make FICA contributions. So that's when you see on your paycheck is FICA. It does not obligate the government to give you anything back. FICA is simply a tax, like an income tax or any other tax. The amount you pay in does not figure 
No, I'm sorry. The amount you pay in does figure into your benefit amount, but Congress can change that benefit anytime it wishes. So there's already a precedence for for being able to make changes to the contribution, not so much the contributions in general, but also to the payouts of Social Security. So there's going to be a lot of very confused people when eventually the system becomes insolvent and they have to base, they have to massively scale back on contributions because people are going to be like, well, this is my money and I paid into it. And there's going to be lawsuits and they're all going to lose because at the end of the day, you're only ob- it's a tax. You're obligated to pay the tax, but you're not guaranteed to get anything back. I mean, could you imagine a world where we were all guaranteed be- to get back the value of the taxes that we paid? Holy smokes, man. It'd be almost undeliverable. So we move on to some facts about Social Security. And I'm fo- focusing on Social Security because this is one of the major boat anchors that's dragging down this country. The amount of money that Social Security siphons off from the national budget every single year, along with Medicare, Medicare and Social Security alone make up about 60% of the federal budget. It's an enormous amount of money. The Democrats sit and complain, moan, and whine about the military expenditures. And Social Security and Medicare easily dwarf military expenditures by massively, massive amounts. And these are just nothing more than wealth redistribution programs, be taking money from one group of people and giving it to another. And so Social Security is probably the best example of this, Medicare being the second best. So we go over to the Pew Research Center, and the Pew Research Center has an article that they did on, I believe this is on August 18th uh, of 2015. So the article is a few years old. But they talk about, quote, the taxes paid by today's workers and their employers don't go into dedicated individual accounts. So we're talking about how the process of Social Security works and some of the myths that are surrounding it. Although 32% of Americans think that they go into these dedicated accounts. So 32% of Americans think that their money is going into some kind of dedicated investment account with Social Security. And this is according to a 2014 Pew Research survey. They continue, nor do Social Security checks represent a return on invested capital. Again, you're, getting, you're giving $1 and you're getting $3 back, but there was, no, there was no investment. It's not like you invested in a product that ended up uh, you know, being sold for a profit or anything like that. There's no investment taking place. You, you might as well, in, a, in a, a visual sense, you might as well be taking your money, putting it in a jar, burying it in the backyard, and then Uncle Sam comes and he digs up that you know, digs up that jar, puts $2 for your $1, and then puts the shit back into the, into the ground. That's, that's, there's nothing, there's no investment mechanism here. Uh, back to the Pew Research article. Uh, it says, rather, the benefits received by today's retirees are funded by the taxes paid by today's workers. When those workers retire, their benefits will be paid by the next generation of workers' as taxes. Your benefit amount is based on your earnings history, at age retirement, not on how much you and your employer paid into Social Security taxes, although for most people, taxes paid are closely tied to their earnings. So you says your benefit amount is based on your earnings history at age retirement. So there's all these misnomers about how you even earn Social Security. So, I mean, it's a based entirely on a percentage of your earning history at the age of your retirement, although they mentioned that your your the pack the taxes that you pay for Social Security are very closely tied to your earnings, so they tend to kind of work out. The Congressional Budget Office, in a separate report that uses somewhat different demographic assumptions, projects that the disability fund will be exhausted in fiscal year 2017, and the old age and survivors fund in calendar year 2031. Now, you may not be aware, Social Security actually has two different funding types. You have the disability 
Social Security. You have the Disability Fund, and then you have the Old Age and Survivors Fund. They're two completely different funds, and they're funded and they're funded separately, and they're paid out separately. And the criteria to be eligible for them is completely separate. Now, um, a little bit of a spoiler alert: uh, the Disability Fund did not actually go bankrupt in 2017. I would say it did technically because what the budget or the continuing resolution that was passed in uh, I want to say it was in sometime in 2017 I'm, I'm going blank on exactly when uh, I was all ready to see this sucker go bankrupt because this was going to be the first shot across the bow to the American people that Social Security is in serious trouble this is known as the third rail of politics uh, politicians have tried uh, to their own detriment to uh, to reform Social Security, including years ago during the Bush administration, there was a proposition to privatize a portion of Social Security, and everybody went nuts. Now, of course they went nuts because Social Security has been a source of funding that the federal government has been able to raid, and it also is a power and vote-buying mechanism. Social Security is used by politicians to buy votes, and it's used as a scare mechanism. So you can only imagine what would happen if we were to privatize even a few percent of everybody's social security contributions into the private market, into the stock market, into the treasury bond market, and if that was to drastically outperform the guaranteed 3% or whatever growth is that social security ends up working out to be by the time you retire, if that actually outperformed what you get from the government, could you imagine, I mean, you'd be stupid not to insist that a vast majority of your earnings be privatized. And of course, that'd be a huge boost to the private sector because all that money that's previously locked up with the federal government that's doing you know nothing productive for you at least could be invested in private businesses or private investment uh, mechanisms or funds and actually do some real good and actually invest on real productivity and not just be basically a, a, a fake quote-unquote investment, which is just wealth redistribution. So... If that was to happen, it would uh, people would be demanding that their money be put into these private investments instead, and the federal government would, glad, would gradually lose and more and more control over Social Security, and as a result, they would lose more and more of their power. And that's really what's important to understand through the context of all these discussions, is that ultimately the money is used to buy votes, and that gives you power. So if the mechanism does not buy votes, and it does not give you power then it is fought, ignored, or lied about when it comes to politicians. So the point is, is kind of myth-busting some of these preconceived notions of Social Security and the fact that these benefits, as Pew points out here, says rather the benefits received by today's retirees are funded by the taxes obviously paid by today's workers. When those workers retire, their benefits will be paid for by the next generation of workers as taxes. Your benefits, okay, I I apologize, I already went through that. Uh, so the Congressional Budget Office talking about the fiscal 2017 and about how the fund will be bankrupt. So I, I digress. I apologize. Getting back to the disability fund. The disability fund was going to be bankrupt by 2017. And so what Congress did is they raided billions and billions of dollars. I think it was like $20 billion, something something to that effect. Um or maybe it was even $200 billion. I, you can feel free to check my facts. But 
Congress raided a significant amount of money from the Old Age and Survivors Fund and transferred it to the Disability Fund. And the reason why the Disability Fund was set to go bankrupt is because after 2008, when the financial crisis hit, we had a lot of people who were out of work. And we had a lot of people who couldn't find jobs. And people have to eat. They have a strong desire to eat. They have a strong desire to have a roof over their head. And so what happened? People started finding ways to fake, exacerbate, or otherwise inflate illnesses or disabilities. Not everybody, but a number of people. They found their way onto the disability rolls. Whether it was real or whether it was fake, whether it was sort of real, they found their way onto the disability rolls so that they can continue to receive money while they were jobless or partially jobless. And so we saw a drastic increase in the amount of people who got on Social Security disability. And as a result, all the actuaries that helped plan for the future were all shot to shit. And so now they were running in the red because there were way too many people on the disability side of Social Security. Now, the old age of the survivors eventually is going to end up that way, too. It's going to end up significantly lopsided, where we're going to have a ton of old people who are drawing Social Security and not enough working age people to pay into the system. And eventually it's going to collapse. The only difference is, is that the old age and survivors fund is scheduled, according to the Pew Research Center in 2015, to collapse in 2031. I actually believe even some estimates today say 2034. I'm going to make a prediction that's probably going to happen sometime in the next 10 years. So sometime between now and 2028, the old age and survivor's benefit is going to go away. It's going to be bankrupt and the, the, they'll have to scale back the benefits dramatically. And people like me, we're going to be lucky if we see anything. So one of the arguments is that basically we shouldn't be concerned about the federal debt because we owe it to ourselves. You know, when was the last time that you got, essentially upset that you gave yourself a loan, quote-unquote, and that you owed yourself money, of course you don't have this problem. And so there's a website called, uh, I think it's Mises.org, M-I-S-E-S.org, where the article is titled, basically, the government debt has no upside, and they're kind of going through some of the myths of government debt, and one of them is that debt is harmless because we owe it to ourselves. And here they say, from an accounting viewpoint, the federal debt is a wash for the country as a whole, assuming it is U.S. citizens who own the debt. Each government bond represents a claim on taxpayers, but if those bondholders consist entirely of U.S. taxpayers, the size of the debt is irrelevant and the total total fiscal wealth. Um, Obviously, this is a myth. And I'm not going to spend a ton of time debunking this except to say that debt debt is debt. That money is owed to somebody. And just because we owe it to ourselves does not mean that the debt is harmless because you're taking money from one person and redistributing it to another. And so either way, you are putting capital in places that it either is used irresponsibly or it's not effective. Um, This goes back to a lot of the wealth redistribution aspects of, of the money, which is, well, the money would be better spent or better used in the hands of people who would use it to consume as opposed to sitting in a bank or, or someplace like that. All of this is completely false. The notion that the government knows where best to distribute money is complete nonsense. The only place that the government will be best at distributing money is to the hands of people who they want votes from and to themselves. So the notion, this is a very important pillar, And I'll get into some of my own political philosophy and my own stances, except to say that when I talk to people about how they may have conservative values, as an example, 
And I'm going to preface to the fact that I don't consider myself exclusively conservative. But one of the things I tell them is, you know, I ask a question. I say, who knows how to spend your money better, you or the federal government? And I've actually had some fools that have told me that they think the federal government can spend their money better than they can, which was unbelievably ignorant. Most rational, intelligent people are going to tell you that they can spend their money better than the government can. Of course you can. You know your own needs better than anybody else, right? So to say that the debt is harmless because we owe it to ourselves implies that it's somehow a wash because even though your money is gone, even though your money has been spent, even though the money, the earnings of your children or your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren or your great-great-grandchildren, those earnings have, those lifetime earnings have already been spent if we are expected to pay this debt back. So I just let that sink in for a minute. Now, of course, we talk about some solutions to the government debt problem. And some of the solutions that are proposed, obviously, is raising taxes. And um, I may butcher the ex- I may butcher the name here. It's I believe it's Hosser. There's actually a um, it's not really an economic principle. It's more or less just an observation based on how our country's laws and culture is organized with respect to tax collection. Um, the I've seen publications that have argued that this particular law, quote unquote. Um, could potentially be debunked if we were to introduce something like a value-added tax like they have in Europe or if we had like a national sales tax that was imposed, things like that. But under the current rules, which even though the tax code is enormously big, um, the according to Hosser's Law, Hosser's Law, and this is according to Wikipedia, just take that, you know, take that with a grain of salt, but I feel like Wikipedia is probably trustworthy in this particular case. Hosser's Law is a proposition that in the United States, federal tax revenues since World War II have always been approximately equal to 19.5% of GDP, regardless of wide fluctuations in the marginal tax rate. Historically, since the end of World War II, federal tax receipts as a percentage of gross domestic product averaged 17.9% with a range from 14.4 to 20.9 percent between 1946 and 2007. So essentially, what this means is is that, uh, and this and this also um, kind of ties into the Laffer curve. And the Laffer curve, I don't have a definition of the Laffer curve in front of me, but essentially is another economic or statistical principle that talks about the rate of taxation across various different marginal rates. And I guess the basic premise of the Laffer curve is that a marginal rate of 100% and a marginal rate of 0% both yield the exact same amount of taxation, which is nothing. If you tax nothing, you get nothing. If you tax everything, no one will work because nobody's interested in working for free. So you get no tax revenue. So that's kind of the Laffer curve um, fundamentals there. But in this case with Hosser's Law, the idea is we can't solve this problem through taxation exclusively, nor can we really solve the problem of this ballooning federal debt exclusively through taxation because no matter what our marginal rates are, we only manage to collect about 19.5% of GDP on average. So... You could raise the marginal rate to 80% for the, you know, for anybody making over a million dollars a year. Either way, people only pay about 
of GDP and total tax revenue. Now, why is that? And it's important. I'm not going to bore everybody by going into my long-winded philosophy on taxes, and that's probably going to be for another podcast. But all you need to understand is, is that the reason why so many tax laws don't work the way they're intended in Washington is because the human factor is not taken into account. Because everybody wants to keep as much of their money as humanly possible. And at some point in the marginal rate of taxes, you get to a high enough taxation level that it becomes more worthwhile to skirt the system, whether legally or illegally, than it is to just cut a check. Because the reverse situation is, at some point, the tax rate gets low enough that the amount of money that you would spend on tax lawyers, the amount of time it would take to fight tax law, or the amount of time that it would take to manipulate or move your money around to avoid taxation, the time or the expense is greater than if you just cut a check. You know, if, 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 if you're paying a top, if you're paying a top marginal rate of 60% of your income annually in taxes, you're going to find a way to cut that down, whether you got to hire a tax attorney or you got to hire a really good, somebody with a CPA, you're going to find every single law, rule, regulation, shell corporation, whatever it takes to exempt as much of your money as humanly possible from being taxed. However, if you were only paying 6%, I mean, it's, so, it's just, just cut a check. Like, why, why bother? Just give them the money. So that's also why in cases of taxation, you'll see tax receipts go up when actual marginal rates go down. And on the face value, it's like, how is it possible that we collect more taxes when the tax rates go down? Well, that's because more people are paying taxes. People who previously weren't paying taxes or people who previously were paying less in taxes suddenly found it more advantageous to just cut a check rather than deal with, you know, being hunted by the IRS breaking the law, or hiring uh, experts that can navigate the system, things like that. So we can't solve the federal debt problem exclusively through taxation because we're limited on the amount of money that's going to come in. We can find ways around that. Like I said, you know, value-added taxes, national sales taxes. What the problem is is that, the, is that it would require the government freezing spending, and they're not going to do that. The federal government is addicted to spending because it buys votes. Because Congress can use that money on projects, on, you know, uh, on pork spending, on special projects, on special interest groups. They use this money to buy, to buy votes, to buy favor, to, to show their constituents that they're doing something for them. I brought money into the area where I grew up. This was all I heard from our, from our Democrat representative were all the bills that he got passed that brought money into the area that I lived in. And it's not money that came, that's not money that belonged to us. It was money paid by other people. And so that's how they get reelected year after year after year. Um, I'm a little out of order here, and I hope you bear with me. I'm new to podcasting. So this first episode is going to be a little bit of a train wreck, and I recognize we're coming up in an hour. So if you're still listening, thank you very much for your time. Again, I do value your time, and I hope you're finding this informational uh, and educational. So let's, I'm going to circle back to, um, I'm going to circle back to Social Security, and then we're going to come back to the debt as a whole because I'm not quite done talking about Social Security and the absolute sham and risk that this thing is. Um, here's the thing is 
each day, and this is uh, so. This is according to this a website called the latest thirteen dcom with an article titled "America's Biggest and Most Predictable Train Wreck is Unfunded Liabilities." So we're kind of talking about the unfunded liability aspect of Social Security, and here it says, well, you know, what's the bigger worry? Social Security's legions of helpless dependents or a grossly indebted government that is quickly running out of willing lenders, a.k.a. you and me who work for a living. Each day, 10,000 American baby boomers on average are signing up for Social Security. Every single day, 10,000 people are signing up for Social Security. According to this article, even in the best case scenario, Social Security is only designed to replace about a 40 percent of the average worker's pre-retirement income. Most people, however, will need seventy to eighty percent of their previous income to cover their senior living costs, and many retirees require even more than that. The system also supports millions of disabled people and survivors of deceased workers. Given this level of dependence, trimming benefits to help keep the system solvent will be virtually impossible. Because what we're gonna we're just gonna have person after person after person toted in front of the cameras and they're gonna they're gonna be crying and, and telling everybody about how they're gonna lose their home, how they're gonna starve. We have so many people that are hopelessly dependent upon this system, and it's by design. Uh, I could go into the history of Social Security and really blow this podcast out of the water in terms of time, but needless to say, it was by design to get people addicted to these benefits and get them dependent on these benefits. So we've created our own monster here. Um, The article continues, At the same time, the higher taxes that are needed to keep the system solvent alongside the inevitable inflationary pressures will make it much harder for Americans to save at a time when it has never been more important that they do so. And so they talk about inflationary aspects again. And this is the thing that's really, it's really depressing. Inflation has done more to rob Americans of their wealth than probably really any other taxation or government force. So it's this, it's sort of this damned if you do, damned if you don't situation, right? If you save money right now, Essentially, you're a sucker. Like, truly, you're a sucker. Money is so incredibly cheap to borrow. It's almost free to borrow in some cases. And if you spend your money today, your money is never going to be worth more in terms of a dollar form than it is in this very moment. Every moment that passes by, the dollar loses more of its actual spending power through inflation. So you are more... You, it is more advantageous for you to spend your money as soon as humanly possible and buying assets, buying, you know, homes and precious metals and investment vehicles, and but, but assets, physical items, because it locks the value of your money in at that time in many cases. So if you save your money when you really need to save it, inflation slowly eats away at that savings. So if you have $15,000 in your bank account today, in 20 years, that $15,000 may only be worth about 10 or 12. It actually may be worth much less than that, depending on the rate of inflation. So saving makes a sucker out of people who do it. But as this article points out, it's never been more important than now that you save because this system is going to go broke. And when it does, a lot of people are going to be hurt. All of those things are probably for later podcasts. So this is probably going to serve as more of a teaser. So we move over to 
an article on the national debt at justfacts.com. And we're talking about some national debt facts and specifically unfunded liabilities. So to give you some numbers, and I know numbers are really difficult to do kind of in a radio format, but I'll do my best. At the close of the federal government's 2017 fiscal year, which was September 30th of 2017, so about a year ago, the federal government had roughly $9.2 trillion in liabilities that are not accounted for in the publicly held national debt, such as federal employee retirement benefits, accounts payable, and environmental or disposal liabilities. $30.8 trillion, so $31 trillion, in obligations for current Social Security participants above and beyond projected revenues from their payroll and benefit taxes. That's a lot, but just stick with me. Certain transfers from the general fund of the U.S. Treasury and assets of the Social Security Trust Fund, $31 trillion. There's $35 trillion, say $34.6, $35 trillion in obligations for current Medicare participants above and beyond projected revenues from their payroll taxes. That's the key. Above and beyond projected revenues. So in other words, $35 trillion above the money that we expect to get. So above and beyond projected revenues from their payroll taxes, benefit taxes, premium payments, and assets of the Medicare Trust Fund. Combining the figures above with the national debt and subtracting the value of federal assets, you know, buildings and shit like that, the federal government has about $88.9 trillion in debts, liabilities, and unfunded obligations as a close of its 2017 fiscal year. Now, the interesting thing is, this is actually in a Treasury report that's issued every single year that they pray to God that you don't see. The media ignore it. No one dares bring this up in any meaningful way because it would essentially be telling the emperor he's got no clothes. Or in this case, the emperor's got no fucking money. That's pretty much what it would come down to. The shortfall... This is this kind of breaks down the debt in terms of r- amounts that you and I can understand. The shortfall equates to $272,405 for every living person in the United States. Do you have $272,000 laying around? I know I don't. Your kids got it? Your cat? Your freaking dog? Do any of you guys got $242,000? Because you kind of owe it to the government. Just saying. $704,391 for every household in the United States. As a household family, you guys got seven hundred grand laying around? I don't know about you, but if I had seven hundred grand laying around, I ain't going to give it to Uncle Sam. I'm going to use that for like college tuition for my kids to maybe pay for a house in cash, uh, you know, to maybe put a swimming pool in that I would never want, but, you know, what the hell. Uh, it amounts to 456% of the U.S. gross domestic products. Remember I talked about that, that 100% of GDP to debt ratio? That's kind of like a psychological limit. Yeah, we're actually at 456%. Have you fallen out of your chair yet? Because if not, you probably ought to think about it. 456% of the gross domestic product of the United States, and that's our GDP to debt ratio, 456%. That is Unreal. And totally unsustainable. 2,485% of the annual federal revenues. Let me let me just cut to the chase. And let me let me, after an hour and seven minutes here, tell you exactly why I'm talking about this as my first topic and why this is so important 
in terms of viewing all the other political discussions. The collapse of the federal government fiscally is inevitable. Inevitable. And I'm not talking about inevitable as in it is inevitable that someday the sun will envelop the earth and we will all burn to death because science. Um, I'm not talking about that kind of inevitability. I mean, it is inevitable that in some time, eh, we'll just cast a wide net. In the next 50 years, in the next 50 years, in the next two generations, it is inevitable the federal government will collapse. In fact, without, again, without extending this podcast any more than it already has been, uh, 2039 has been one particular doomsday year because of a various, various different combinations of the amount of people on Social Security or welfare rolls and Medicare rolls in comparison to the amount of people who are working uh, factored in with you know, like what we expect to be uh, producing at the time of the country, like annual economic growth. There's a lot of different factors that kind of coalesce and have 2039 as like the red letter date of destruction where we all of a sudden have to start making some very, very difficult choices about how we spend our money because it's gone. But I'm here to tell you the money's been gone for a long time. We're already screwed. We are already sailing off the side of the cliff, headed towards the canyon floor. And the only reason why everything is going so well is because we're really enjoying what we think is flying when it's actually falling fast as fuck. We're like Buzz Lightyear falling with style. But let me tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. When we crater on the bottom of that canyon floor, it is going to be ugly. It is going to hurt everyone. There will not be a man, woman, or child, not a cat, not a dog. There will be no one in this country that will escape some kind of damage. Fiscally, uh, you know, uh, some economic damage of some kind. People are going to see savings evaporate. They're going to see investments evaporate. They're going to see services and, and products evaporate. Businesses are going to go under. They're going to leave. People are going to lose their jobs. The government is going to collapse. Now, that doesn't mean it's going to go away. It doesn't mean there's going to be complete anarchy. But what it means is for a period of time, if you think you've seen a government shutdown now, if you think you've seen these, these BS shutdowns that we've seen, whether under the Bush administration or the Obama administration, where, the, where 15% of the government that's not considered essential shuts down, and you think that that's a big deal? You think when it's a big deal that you can't take your kids to the National Park because President Obama decided to erect barriers around statues in the middle of the open public space? If you think that's a big deal, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's going to be bad. It's going to hurt everybody. It's going to hurt you. It's going to hurt me. It's not going to matter how much you saved. The only variation is going to be how badly you get hurt. Some people will get hurt a little. Some people will get hurt a lot. And so higher taxes are not going to solve the problem. Really austerity, lowering federal spending, forcing people to not rely on federal programs and allowing the free market to service the needs of Americans in a greater fashion, that's really going to be the only way to fix this problem. But I'm here to tell you that as far as I'm concerned, it's already too late. It's already too late. It's only a matter of time before the debt swallows everything because it's too huge. We have too much and unfunded liabilities. Someone will have to get the haircut. 
It's most likely going to be my generation and the generations before me. The people who are older than me probably may escape it. They may be on the cusp of it. But when it comes to cuts and stuff like that, they're not going to enforce those cuts directly on people who are receiving funds because they're going to parade them in front of the camera. The people who are going to get the cuts are the ones who are not in front of the camera, who are not directly affected at that particular moment in time, but are still going to get hurt. So uh, I'm sorry to be the bearer of bad news, but that's the reason why this is the very first topic I'm talking about is this is how you have to view. So all the day-to-day shit that happens in Washington, it's all a dog and pony show. It's all fake. None of it means anything. It doesn't mean anything. It's like a, it's, it's like being in a theater and watching a play and you're in the audience and the theater's on fire. All right. Sooner or later, the roof's going to cave in and kill everybody. But everybody is on stage, acting out their roles, acting out the drama, the back and forth, the name calling, people in the audience gasping, people in the audience laughing, arguing with each other about who's better and who's the villain and who's the hero. And here we are, those of us who actually pay attention. And I would assume that you're a person who pays attention because you found your way here. And we see the theater is burning down around us. And we're wondering why nobody's grabbing a a fire extinguisher or calling the freaking fire department to come put the shit out. And any moment now, that roof is going to cave in and kill all of us. And all we can do is sit around and bicker about Donald Trump, about Obama, about the Democrats, about the Republicans. And I'm here to tell you, there's problems that are way bigger than all of these people. So that's why... I talk about this. I'm not quite done yet, but we're, we're, we're working towards the bottom here. So talking about the $272,000 for every living person in the United States, for 704000 for households, and, and so on and so forth. The fig- they offer an asterisk, uh, a caveat. So the figures above do not account for the future costs implied by any current policies except those of Social Security and Medicare programs. So that's just... Social Security and Medicare, 272000 for every person living in the United States. That's not just the total debt. That's just Social Security and Medicare. So the number is far worse. In fact, government agencies that are responsible for tracking this stuff have openly stated they actually don't know how bad it is. They really don't know how bad the risk is. They don't know how big the danger is because the data is not available, because the books have been cooked so bad that no one actually can tell us how bad it is. So we might as well just assume that this is a, you know, a four-alarm fire. Any minute that roof's going to cave in and kill us. That's really, I mean, we, we, might, we might have until 2020. We have no idea when this is actually going to kick in. And I'm here to tell you that you're not going to know until it's too late. None of us will know until it's too late because we don't want to cause a panic. You see, we don't want people to not show up to the polls. We want people, you know, demanding that their legislators do something about it because that would mean it's money they can't spend to buy votes. So by the time it is well past too late to do something about this, that's when we're going to be told, hey, by the way, we're out of money. And when I mean we're out of money, I mean we're not only out of money, we whistled past zero a long time ago. We're like $90 trillion in the red. We're, we're, we owe so much goddamn money to everybody, it can't possibly be repaid. And then we default. 
not with the debt ceiling, not with these these fake battles that take place with the stupid debt ceiling of the budgets. We default when we go, oh, we can't pay it back. Sorry, guys. Um, continuing, these figures are based on current federal law and, quote, a wide range of complex assumptions. Oh, doesn't that make you feel good? Made by federal agencies regarding this. The Board of uh, Social Security Trustees have stated that, quote, significant uncertainty surrounds the best estimates of future circumstances. So even the rosiest colored glasses that we can put on, there is significant uncertainty. The Board of Medicare Trustees has stated that the program's long-term costs may be, quote, substantially higher than projected under current law. And this is because current law includes the effects of the Affordable Care Act. Ooh, Obamacare which will cut Medicare prices for many health care services to, quote, less than half of their level under prior law per the trustees. So there's some unintended consequences of the Affordable Care Act with respect to cutting health care services, which may or may not impact the cost. That's all they're saying. So there's kind of a final article that I wanted to go through here. And this is sort of a mishmash of some of the things we talked about. This is from a website called truthdig.com. And it's an article entitled Conjuring Up the Next Depression. So they're kind of hypothesizing where the next economic depression may come from and using 2008 as a reference point. So this is what the article says is what will trigger the next crash? The $13.2 trillion in unsustainable U.S. household debt, the $1.5 trillion in unsustainable student loan debt, the billions Wall Street has invested into the fracking industry that they claim has spent $280 billion more than it generated from its operations. I don't know if that's true or not. I haven't corroborated that fact. Uh, what is certain is that the global financial crash, one that will dwarf the meltdown in 2008, is inevitable. And this time, with interest rates near zero, the elites have no escape plan. Now, this is a little bit of a broader context discussion than what I really wanted to get into today. But my point is, debt is debt, whether it's personal debt, government debt, uh, you know, inflationary created debt, anything of that nature, that we're facing economic crises from almost every single angle that we could possibly point ourselves at. There's, there's virtually no escape route that we can go to that does not involve us getting the shit stabbed out of us in the process. Um, it, there's going to be some measure of economic damage before we can even hope to see the light on the other side of the tunnel on this one. And in this case, this article is discussing the, uh, the vast amount of, the, of, of fake money, essentially, that was injected into the United States economy by the federal treasury as a result of the 2008 collapse, and kind of giving you a gauge of what it took to, <laughs> to fix the problem, but understand that that this was like a this was like a one time fix that that this is not something that can be repeated, but more importantly, a lot of people got rich off of this collapse. Okay, and it even goes into discussing a little bit of why the wealth gap has increased, and that's something I can talk about very briefly as well. But again, another topic for another time. They talk about here it says the article states the Federal Reserve handed over an estimated $29 trillion, that's with a T, T is in Tom, of this fabricated money to the American banks, according to researchers at the University of Missouri. The feds handed out loans in essentially fake cash 
and that's kind of it's and and again this is a this is part of a bigger discussion so I'm really really like summarizing this in a in a huge way uh, these topics are immensely more complex than what I can provide for you but but very simply the Federal Reserve created money out of thin air with loans it's credit again it's all credit it's not real it's not a it's not actual um it's not anything of value it's just it's just credit that's pretending to be the u.s dollar and over the course of all of these loans they gave over they gave 29 trillion dollars to these companies so that money went somewhere um, the article states an emergency clause in the Federal Reserve Act of 1913 allows the Fed to provide liquidity to a distressed banking system. So if you're not really for, like familiar with some of the banking terms, liquidity is essentially money. So in, in, in the asset-owning world, a liquidity or liquidating an asset means taking an asset and, and exchanging it for cash, exchanging it for something that can be used as some form of currency. So... What was happening in 2008 was the banks had significantly more money in loans than they did in available assets to sell. They had no liquidity. And so liquidity had to be injected in order for these bills to be paid. Otherwise, these companies were just all, they would all go under, and everybody who was owed money would have been screwed, essentially. So in this case, the Fed can provide liquidity to a distressed banking system, but the Federal Reserve did not stop with the creation of a few hundred billion. It flooded the financial markets with absurd levels of fabricated money. This had the effect of making the economy appear as if it had revived. And for the oligarchs who had access to this fabricated money, while we did not, it did. So here's here's something very, very important to understand about the relationship between money or dollars and assets. And in this case, we'll use assets as, we'll use your home as an example, okay? But assets could be precious metals, anything that can hold value or appreciate in value, I would say we would consider some type of an asset. We talked earlier about inflation and how over time, the dollar becomes worth less and less and less every single year. So what assets do is assets lock in the value of your dollar at the time that you bought it. Now, the value of assets can change, but in the case of your home, home prices on average appreciate about an average of 3% per year, depending on where you live and all the factors that go into real estate. So the reason why a home can be, it's not expected to be, but it can be a good investment resource is because you're taking your money and putting it into an asset. So if you're wealthy, that's what you do. You buy assets with your cash. And those assets, hopefully, at the very least, do not lose money. And at best, they actually appreciate in value. So you have to contrast that with somebody who lives their life paycheck to paycheck. Because every single year, their money is worth less and less, which means every single year, you have to have that quote-unquote cost of living increase. That's an inflation increase. That's what that is. So it means that every single year you have to earn a little bit more money every single year just to keep pace with the inflation of the dollar. And God forbid if you don't get a raise at all, that means that after several years you're earning less money even if on paper your salary is not changed. So the wage gap or the, not the wage gap, but the actual wealth gap 
that exists in the United States is not because the wealthy have stolen money necessarily, not because there's been some great theft, not because there's been some grand conspiracy, although certainly getting rich on the backs of the Federal Reserve I would consider to be cronyism, but the wealthy have gotten more wealthy because they bought into assets with their cash while the vast majority of middle America are living some fashion of paycheck to paycheck, or if they have savings, their savings are in dollars. Their savings are not in assets like homes or precious metals or investments or stocks or bonds, things that appreciate or hold or lock in their value. They are in dollars that depreciate, that appreciate, that inflate every single year. So, that's why the gap continues to widen. And it widens at a rate that's pretty much either on track with inflation or potentially on track with the value of assets. And so one of the things that we saw in 2008 was all of this cheap money that was entering into the markets. That's why the housing prices skyrocketed so quickly is because they were assets and as a result of that, because there were so, because it was so easy and cheap to get loans, people didn't care what they paid for, because in some cases they were only they were keeping these homes for a few months and then they were flipping them for more money. So you don't give a shit how much the house costs. You're only concerned about percentages. If I can flip a house for ten or fifteen percent, I don't care if it's four hundred grand or six hundred grand. As long as the bank will give me my money, that sucker's gone in a heartbeat. So that's essentially what set up this giant bubble that once it burst, a lot of people were left holding the bag. But if you were fortunate enough to have your money in an asset during that time period, or when asset prices crashed and you scooped them up, you could potentially made a lot of money. But in this case, we had $29 trillion of dollars that were given to somebody. And what did they do with that money? They invested it in assets. They made a shitload of money doing it. So back to this article, Um, It says the global financial system is a ticking time bomb. The question is not if it will explode, but when. And once it does, the inability of the global speculators to use fabricated money with zero interest to paper over the debacle will trigger massive unemployment, high prices for imports and basic services, and devaluation in which the dollar will become nearly worthless as it is abandoned as the world's reserve currency. The reserve currency aspect is, um, again, another just yet another facet of a larger discussion. But essentially what they mean by the when you hear that the dollar is the world's reserve currency, that is based on the gold standard. Because at one point in time, the value of gold was tied to the, – the dollar was tied to the value of gold. The idea was that your dollar could be exchanged for what a dollar of gold is worth. And the reason why the gold standard didn't work is because it did not allow for the inflationary nature of today's money to exist. And so what it meant was the government couldn't print more money. The government couldn't print more money. And so when the government ran out of money, they ran out of money. And this obviously doesn't work. They need the, in order to sustain the way the system operates, they have to be able to create money out of nothing. So the gold standard was, was abandoned. But during the time that the United States had the gold standard, other countries did not. And so their currency was wildly unstable because it wasn't based on any, the worth of the currency was not based on anything uh, uh, tangible. There were no assets to back the currency. 
So what countries decided to start doing is they started to they start they decided to start tying their currency to the dollar because they knew the dollar was tied to gold. Hence the reserve currency. Well, once we abandoned the gold standard, countries didn't stop using the dollar as the world's reserve currency. And in fact, in many, many, many places across the planet, you can exchange X country's currency for dollars. And there's some type of a exchange rate at that point. So if we know, so basically when it comes to servicing our debt, we can pay for our debt in U.S. dollars. Because other countries are more than happy to take U.S. dollars. So what that means is we can print the money that we then put in a briefcase and give to the countries to service our debt if we wanted to. But if we no longer were the reserve currency, if let's say we went back to the British sterling pound, which used to be the world's sort of reserve currency before the U.S. dollar prior to the Second World War, if we had to extend, instead exchange dollars into another currency, well, now the real value of the dollar would become apparent because right now it's based on sort of a fabrication because if the value of the dollar collapses, suddenly everything becomes more expensive. Oil becomes more expensive. Goods and services become more expensive because everything has to rise in relation to the value of how much the dollar has in terms of spending power. If if the dollar was to gain, a, you know, was to inflate by a thousand percent, then the prices of everything go up overnight. It's exactly what what is happening in Venezuela right now. So it's in everybody's best interest across the planet to continue to pretend that the dollar is not massively inflated. But if there was another currency that countries could use as a reserve currency or another currency that they could operate in that could be safely independent of the dollar. We're screwed. We are totally screwed because then the countries will start operating in that currency and we will now have to pay our bills in that currency, which means we will be subjected to the exchange rate. We could print all the money that we wanted, but essentially the gig will be up. Countries will be free to speak the truth about the nature of the dollar's value and not fear repercussions in their own economy necessarily. That's one potential additional failure scenario in addition to or uh, in conjunction with a federal collapse because of debt. So we could potentially see the government collapse because we cannot service our debt because the debt swells to such an unbelievable number that we spend a majority of the federal debt just servicing the debt in interest and in principal payments. Or we have some type of an economic condition change across the country and across the world rather where the world's reserve currency is no longer the dollar, and then the dollar actually is now represented in its real inflationary rate, prices for everything skyrocket, unless you you know happen to have exchanged your dollars for whatever the other currency is at the time and preserved the value of the dollar in another currency or asset, um, we, we, we'd all be screwed. So you have to... So that's kind of... <laughs> The, the basis for this discussion is, and I mean, I've left a tremendous amount of information out in this hour and 30 minutes that we've been together. So it's important to understand this is a massive issue. It's a complex issue. There's not an easy fix. You can't just say raise taxes. You really can't just say cut government spending because we have people dependent on these services now. 
and there's there's a potential humanitarian crisis if we do this wrong. So all of these conditions and factors have to be taken into account when it comes to trying to figure out what a solution is to these topics. But here's the thing that needs to be kept in mind. The longer we wait to fix this problem, the more extreme the solutions will have to become because we'll have very, very few options left to exercise, to, to solve the issue. If we wait until it's too late, then we will suffer enormous economic catastrophe and it will make the third rail discussions of social security in Congress look absolutely silly because instead of talking about privatizing social security and stripping the federal government and some of its ability to buy votes, we will instead uh, be talking about how much we have to cut or how many people we have to cut off the federal rolls or how much we have to raise taxes or how much, uh, you know, these, these, unbelievably solutions that would get politicians unelected or thrown out of office would all of a sudden be looking, people be looking at that going, Oh man, that's actually a pretty good idea. We probably should do that instead. Um, that's unfortunately the situation that we'll be left in. So we're going to conclude it there today. Um, this is a pretty big topic. It's something I'll probably revisit later on, but, um, you know, feel free to investigate these articles, to look into this issue yourself. The federal debt's a very, very real problem. It is not created by one president. It is not created by one political party. Uh, if anything, the collective uh, efforts of Washington are simply just to spend money. Even even today, even the, the supposed deficit hawks of the Republican Party are, we just passed one of the largest spending bills in human history of like $1.1 trillion dollars. Um, you know, it, it, it's unbelievable amounts of money that are being spent in Washington today um, by the very same party that has tried to, uh, in the past, pass a constitutional balanced budget amendment. Um, it's a big problem. And it's one that everyone is ignoring. It's one that no one will talk about because it means making some very, very big sacrifices. And it means a lot of people not being able to take advantage of the gravy train. And it means stripping the federal government of its ability to buy votes with the tax revenues of probably generations and generations and generations of our children, let alone us. So I hope you enjoyed listening to today's podcast. Thank you very much for your time. I do try to be very respectful of it. And until then, feel free to continue to educate yourself and uh, try to avoid getting banned out there, folks. We'll talk to you next time.